So this morning, as we're continuing our uh, series on confession and forgiveness, we're going to read uh, from Matthew chapter 21, verse, or sorry, Matthew chapter 19, verses 21 through 35. This is a parable of Jesus, beginning at verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brothers or sisters who sin against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay you back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. When the master called the servant in, you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I think it was Alexander Pope who said that to err is human... To forgive is divine. And I think what he meant by that was simply that uh, it is a natural thing for human beings to sin, to err, to make mistakes, to hurt other people. Whereas it is a part of our character to be sinful, it's a part of God's character to be forgiving. And, and there's no doubt that sin comes naturally to us. We, it doesn't take any effort for us human beings to commit sin, does it? But it does seem to take work for us to forgive. Because it's not natural for us. It's not something that we come easily to, typically. But you know, the Bible says that we must forgive. The Bible says that, that forgiveness is actually at the heart of Christianity. You know, some of us want to say, well, I'll forgive this person if they deserve it. That is the most ridiculous thing to ever dare say. It doesn't even make sense. Imagine if God said that. Imagine if God said, well, there's Paul, and he did it again. Should I forgive him? Well, I don't know. Well, I think he deserves it. Of course that does not make sense, because the whole point of forgiveness is giving to someone something that they do not deserve, right? See, the gospel is all about us getting the opposite of what we deserve. Grace, God's undeserved, unmerited favor. That's what we get in the gospel. 
And forgiveness is an act of God's grace. So it's ridiculous to only forgive those who deserve to be forgiven. Nobody deserves to be forgiven. That's the whole point of forgiveness in the first place. Here's what I'm trying to say. To be a Christian means to be forgiving. If you're not a forgiving person, if you hold back forgiveness, if you hold grudges, if you maintain them, you can't call yourself a Christian. Now, can you be a non-Christian and be a forgiving person? Absolutely you can. But, if you ask me, can you be a Christian and not be a forgiving person? The answer is no. Look, you can hold apples in your hands. That doesn't make you an apple tree. But if you are an apple tree, you will necessarily produce apples. And the same is true with forgiveness. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you will necessarily be a forgiving person. The one follows from the other. And those who hold grudges, those who won't forgive, those who, who maintain their hurts and their slights and all that kind of stuff, their anger, they don't have a right to call themselves Christians. Now, I know that that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Maybe you're thinking, whoa, how dare you, preacher man? You better back it up. Well, that's what we're going to do in this story this morning. We're going to back that claim up and we're going to unfold it. See, we're going to see three things in this parable this morning. We're going to see the consequences of unforgiveness. We're also going to see why those consequences are so severe. And then we're going to see the healing of unforgiveness. So let's have a look together. First of all, the consequences of unforgiveness. It's right there at the very end of the whole story where it says in verse 34, in anger his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from the heart. It says here that the master or the king is going to hand over this servant until he pays back absolutely everything that he owed. And the point is, he never will. He's handed over to the jailers because what Jesus is saying is, is that if he refuses to be forgiving the way the king was forgiving toward him, he is going to experience eternal punishment and suffering as a consequence of that. If he refuses to forgive, he is going to not be forgiven for his own sin. What he's talking about here is eternal punishment. He's talking about hell. Now I know we're uncomfortable talking about hell. We're uncomfortable talking about eternal punishment. For us, it's very, very difficult to imagine a good, loving, gracious, merciful, kind, gentle God who is also a stern judge. It doesn't make sense to us. We say that God is either one or the other. Those who have come from very uh, legalistic religious backgrounds, they understand Jesus as, or God as primarily this angry judge. And some of us who have come from very permissive backgrounds, we only understand God as a primarily a gentle, kind, kind of grandfatherly figure. But the idea that God could be both merciful 
and severe in his justice is very, very difficult for us. And so passages like this, we, we don't know what to do with them. We have this king who is both kind and forgiving, but he's also very severe. But that's precisely Jesus' point. You know, in Romans chapter 11, verse 22, the Apostle Paul says, Note the kindness and severity of God. You cannot avoid the fact that he is both. The Bible is full of story after story after story after story demonstrating that God is both merciful and kind and gentle, but also just and, yes, severe. The consequence of an unforgiving heart or attitude, friends, is everlasting, is ongoing, is forever. It's eternal punishment. Do you notice that it says that, that they are that this man is handed over to the jailers to be tortured. Jesus is specifically using this language to describe what hell is like. It is torture. And that's the fate that awaits those of us who refuse to be forgiven. Now, the question, I, that's obviously severe. The question becomes, why? Why is it so severe? And that's point number two, the, the the reason that the consequence of unforgiveness is so severe. And there's actually two that we see in this passage. Um, and the first one is because of what it does to us. Now, the story itself helps us understand this. Remember, the servant is given this huge, huge sum of money. It says that he got 10,000 bags of gold or another, another, other, um, translations, 10,000 uh, talents of gold, and it says that he was owed uh, simply one bag of gold, right? Or sorry, no, it says 100 silver coins, or more literal translation is 300 denarii, that's the uh, a currency of the day. Now, 300 denarii equaled about one year's wages. One talent equaled about 20 years' wages. This servant owed the king 10,000 bags or talents of gold. So he owed what in our day and age language we would call like billions and billions of dollars. And actually, it raises a question. How in the world was he able to incur such a massive, impossibly huge debt? And the answer is because he was probably what you would call a satrap or a regional governor. Think about it this way. Um, this is during the Roman period, right? Uh, who paid, uh, during the Roman Empire, who paid for the soldiers and the roads and the aqueducts and the bridges that were built and all that kind of stuff? Well, the answer is Caesar himself. He paid for things through his regional governors, like Pilate, for example. And so this guy was probably one of those governors, and he squandered the king's wealth that was under his uh, authority. And in doing so, he actually jeopardized the king's ability to govern because he had lost so much uh, money and so many funds. And so the king could sell this family off. Uh, he could 
seize his assets and he could kind of just cut his losses, but instead the king forgave the debt, which means the king absorbed the debt. You know, when, this, when the servant says, I'll pay you back everything I owe you, the king knows that ain't going to happen. The king knows it's impossible. Okay? But he cancels. It says he cancels the debt anyway. That doesn't mean the debt goes away. It doesn't mean it just sort of disappears into thin air. No, no, no. Someone always has to pay. And the king said, I will pay it at huge cost to myself. Now later on, the king sees the servant, and he watches as the servant shakes down another person for a very small debt that was owed to him. And scholars have noted, actually, that uh, this character, this unforgiving, unmerciful servant, is described in particularly negative kind of terms. So he's sort of skeevy, kind of slimy. Uh, he... It says that he chokes the other servant, so he's violent. It says that he throws the other servant in prison in, until he can pay. And if you think about it, that makes no sense, because if you throw him in prison, they can't do the work required to pay, right? So he's vindicted. He's vindictive, sorry. He's, he's even willing to crush this guy with the law. He's a little bit, if you are familiar with any of Shakespeare, um, in The Merchant of Venice, there's a character called Shylock. Shylock is petty and angry and vindictive and merciless and demanding. That's what this guy is like in this story. And what it shows, friends, is that if you don't have a spirit of forgiveness, you can't really grasp grace at all. See, he doesn't get the king's forgiveness. Look in verse 33. It says... Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? What the king is saying, what the master is saying is, look, if you understood my forgiveness, if you understood my grace, you would be gracious too. You would be forgiving too. If you can't open your heart to mercy toward others, it's proof that you haven't opened up your heart to the mercy of God. Or let me put it this way. The best way to tell if you have a relationship with God that is based on His grace is by checking your own heart to see if you have a heart for forgiveness. Um, there's a guy, uh, a, a biblical scholar by the name of Frederick Beekner. And he says it very interestingly. He, he puts it this way. Now, he's talking about anger, but often anger is what lies at the heart of unforgiveness. And he says this. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is the most fun. To savor the last toothsome morsel of the pain you are giving back to them. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down at this feast is yourself. Now, Beekner is drawing on the tremendous insight of Jesus' teaching here. Look, the gospel is that every moment of your life and my life is a gift of grace because of the infinite debt that you and I have occurred against God because of our sin. It's all gone. It's all taken away. 
When Jesus went to that cross, he paid for every single sin that you and I have ever committed. Anyone that you've committed in the past, the ones you're committing right now, the ones that you're going to commit in the future, the ones that you knew you committed and therefore repented of, the ones you don't know you've committed and never even thought to repent of. Every single sin is covered, canceled, paid, gone. Now when that truth, and, and by the way, that's an infinite debt that we have that we owe God, that we have incurred to God. And when that sinks into us, when that grips you, what happens is, is you become more like Jesus. You become more gracious. You become more compassionate. You become more kind, more patient, more gentle, more merciful, more forgiving. But, if, like Beekner says, you savor the last toothsome morsel of the pain that you're giving back to others by holding on to a grudge, by remembering every slight, by keeping every hurt close to your chest like that, you know what? You become more self-righteous. You become more self-pitying. You become more like Satan. You're on your way to hell. You're on your way to eternal punishment. This servant was forgiven an infinite debt. It was absolutely impossible that he would ever be able to pay billions upon billions of dollars back. And he can't even pass on a little bit of grace. Now, Jesus is using an extreme example to paint a picture. And don't be fooled into thinking, well, you know, it's for these extreme cases. I knew a man who, when I knew him, he was in his 70s already. But he had grown up in the Netherlands. And while he was in the Netherlands, um, he experienced, he was, he was under Nazi occupation. And because of that experience, he hated Germans all his life wanted nothing to do with them. Even Germans who had nothing to do with his history with the Nazi regime. And it became so bad that, that he, 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 he never seemed really happy until he was angry. He was ruled by this anger. He was in jail because of his anger. And so sometimes when he, he didn't know what to do with himself and he, was, he, he couldn't feel angry just sort of on his own, he would read World War II history novels to, or books to get himself angry again. See, he was ruled by it, and it was almost like it was the only way that he felt comfortable in his own skin was when he was angry and, and thinking about his hatred towards the Nazi, Nazi regime. Hebrews 12, verse 15 says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up in you and causes trouble. You see... Unforgiveness does something to us. It turns us into a cold, hard, unable to love, unable to show kindness and mercy, mercy kind of person. And hell is just the extension of that, you see. So, the reason the consequence is so severe is because what it's doing to us. 
But even worse, even worse is what it does to the witness of the gospel. Because you see, actually, the king or the master, he's not only angry with the servant because of what kind of person the servant is becoming. It's actually because of the damage to the gospel itself. Now, let me, let me help you understand this. The gospel is all about reconciliation. That's why Jesus came into this world, to reconcile us to God and to enable us to be reconciled to one another. So 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18 says, All this is from God who rescued us, oops, sorry, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now note this. This parable in Matthew 18 is part of the whole chapter of Matthew 18. There's a structure to the, to the greater talk that Jesus is giving. And the whole emphasis is on this reconciliation that God is bringing through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the first story in Matthew chapter 18 uh, is actually the parable of the lost sheep, right? And so shepherd, he has a hundred sheep, and one of them wanders off, and so he leaves the hundred sheep and goes after the one sheep, and he gets it back, and it says in verse 14, in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. He wants to be reconciled. That's why Jesus came to save sinners. But then, Jesus turns and he starts talking about the church, and in verses 15 to 20, he says, look, if your brother or sister sins against you, what you need to do is you need to go to them, point out their sin to them, seek uh, their repentance so that you can forgive them and be reconciled to one another. Now, why? Why is that the next thing that Jesus talks about? Here's why. Because the church is meant to be the visible expression of the power of the gospel here on earth. Where should the world go to see that the gospel works? You want to proclaim the gospel. I want to proclaim the gospel. We want to tell people that Jesus lived the life we should have lived, that he died the death we should have died. Where, where should the church go to see evidence that it works, that it's true? Look at the racial tension that the world is, is dealing with right now. Where should the world go to see that there's an answer to the problem? The answer is the church. Should see communities of reconciliation where people are not uh, uh, put in separate classes based upon these external realities, but rather we see that everyone is made in the image of God and everyone is a sinner deserving of God's judgment, but we're all also saved by the exact same grace. People who are saved from their beautiful sins, like... You know, they're gossipy, they tell lies once in a while, they, you know, maybe have fudged on a tax return here or there, that kind of thing. And people who have been saved from their ugly sins, murderers, robbers, the sexually immoral, we're all on the same page. That's the church. People should see in the church 
a community where, where those tensions have been overcome and we have been reconciled and we embrace as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. The church is the place where people should come and they should hear stories of marriages that have been on the rocks because maybe one spouse deeply, deeply hurt another spouse, betrayed that other spouse, but they came to the place where they saw their sin and they sought reconciliation, they confessed their sin, and that other spouse, when the world would say to them, look, dump them, kick their butt to the curb, they don't deserve another chance, you'd be better off without him they said no I will move toward them in grace and forgiveness and they were reconciled and their relationship their marriage was 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 a picture of God's redemptive reconciling power in the world my own parents story is that exact story God is in the business of restoration and when the world wonders if it's possible, it should be able to see that in the church. Story after story after story of God's reconciling work in the relational lives of his people. I'll give you one more example. Bothan Jean, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right, and I apologize for that. I couldn't find, I couldn't hear his name so on, on the internet to find out the proper way of pronouncing it. Anyhow, he was a young black man, an accountant, and he lived in Dallas, Texas, and one night he's in his, ice, in his uh, apartment eating ice cream. It's around a little after 10 o'clock. And his door to his apartment opens, and Amber Geiger, a woman, walks in, and she had just finished her shift, she was a police officer, and she thought she was coming home, but she had entered the wrong apartment. And she thought that both and Jean, who was in his apartment eating ice cream, she thought that he was a burglar. And she pulled out her firearm, and she told him to freeze and not move, and it was dark and hard for her to see, and she shot and killed him. It's a horrible, horrible story. Now, she was arrested and tried and sentenced for murder. And at her sentence hearing, Bothan's younger brother, Brant, who was only 18 years old, gave an impact statement in court. This is what he said. If you truly are sorry, I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone can say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, but I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I presently want the best for you. And I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best thing would be to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. And then he turns to the judge. And he says, I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug, please? And the judge 
allows it. He comes down off the stand, and she comes out from behind the defendant's table, and they meet, and they embrace, and they hug, and she sobs uncontrollably in this young man's shoulder. Grace does that. If we know God's grace, and if we love God's grace, we will extend God's grace. It's, it's like a river flowing from God to us, out to others. But if we don't, friends, we dam it up. We dam up the river of God's grace. Listen to how uh, Brian Chapel, a, a preacher, a theologian, puts it. The gospel for which Jesus died is damaged if it does not flow through us. For us to receive the great grace that flowed from the wounded side of Jesus. And then to say that though the stream of mercy that flowed from the cross itself through the blood of the martyrs down through the centuries and it gets to me and does not go past me, this mercy does not flow past me. The mercy must flow, God says. The mercy stream cannot be damned up. The consequence is so severe because the damage to the gospel is so tremendous. Last thing. The healing of forgiveness. How, how do we break the dam? Maybe, maybe you're a person who's who's been trying to be forgiving, but there's maybe someone in your life, in your past, in your history, that you are struggling to forgive, you're unable to forgive, that the, the, the flow of God's grace has reached a dam in your heart. And that person is, is now thirsting for grace, but you won't give it to them. How do you blow it up so that the grace flows? So that forgiveness flows? We have to see this parable, friends, as more than just a parable. It is actually a veiled prophecy of the future. See, Jesus is telling this story under the shadow of the cross. Because when he went to that cross, you see, what he did was he died for your sin, for your debt, that was of infinite value. Now, he didn't do that just collectively, okay? He did that individually. It's not like the sins of the world created this infinite debt. Oh, no, it's your individual sin. It's my individual sin, just like the servant's individual sin incurred this infinite debt against his master so your individual sin and my individual sin has incurred an infinite debt against our savior and jesus is the king who paid the ultimate price to cancel your debt let me put it to you this way there is nothing anyone can do to you that compares to what you have done to God. 
Just saying it makes me want to say, now come on. But when we say, now come on, it means we don't understand. We're the servant who incurred an infinite debt. That there is no end to how serious our sin is against God. And, you know, we live in an era where you're supposed to believe the victim. Just, just believe the victim and understand things from the victim's perspective. And you may say as a perpetrator, no, I couldn't have done an infinite, uh, incurred an infinite debt, debt against God, but God is the victim here, and God is the one who tells us our debt is infinite. And so what did he do? He paid that infinite debt with the blood of his own son. See, when, when we know that, we, we can't hold back grace. We, we, it's, you can't. When you are in the stream of God's grace and it is flowing over you with such tremendous power, that it overwhelms you and bowls you over, you are free to let it flow through you to others. Oh, that we would be a forgiving people so the world may know a forgiving God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and forgiveness and we confess and we are sorry for the fact that we just don't understand how tremendously costly our sin was to you. Teach us how costly it was. May we bask in your grace in such a way that we cannot and ref we refuse to hold back that grace from others so that the world can see that indeed you reconcile. That is the business you are in. That is the power that you provide through the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.